Well, this morning I would like to continue uh, in our series on the gospel for daily life, the gospel for real life. Some of us perhaps we're calling it the gospel on Tuesday afternoons at one o'clock. If you're new with us today, we have been, uh, over the last six weeks or so, we have been taking another look at the gospel, which is the foundation for the Christian faith. Everything in the Bible, everything in this book is about the gospel. It's anticipating the gospel, explaining the gospel, or working out the implications of the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ came onto the scene proclaiming. He came proclaiming this news, and it's the news that he accomplished in the work of his life. And we want to be sure that we understand it and that we understand how it works in the Christian faith. Now, so far, some of the main ideas that we have have covered have to do with what the gospel is and how we need it. This sermon, these sermons are building upon one another, so if, if you've missed any of the main ideas, I'd encourage you, uh, those are available online, but, but briefly reminded, we've seen what the gospel is. The brief definition that I've offered is that the gospel is the good news that God is willing to save sinners through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But many of us know this, right? Some of us have heard this from the nursery, maybe even in this nursery, and now we're sitting in here, that the gospel is the news that God saves sinners through the person of Jesus. Many of us know this. We, we know the historical facts of the gospel, but many of us do not know the power of the gospel, and especially not the full power of the gospel as it comes to bear in our lives. So we've been reminded that the gospel is for Christians. It's not just for non-Christians. It's not just for new Christians or for baby Christians. But we've seen from Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. We've summarized it like this, saying the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. But we've seen that all of us are, the New Testament writers are constantly talking about how Christians are prone to drifting. We're prone to drift away from the gospel. That means we may still believe the gospel, and we may still be safe in in terms of eternal security. We may still believe in a shell of the gospel, but we drift. We fall into pretending that we're better than we really are and and into trying to perform to get God's approval or the approval of others. And if we drift away from the gospel, what we've seen is that we don't really grow and our lives, our spiritual lives, lack power. Because the way that we grow is by seeing who God is and by seeing who we are and then appreciating what Christ has done on the cross. We've used this chart, you remember this? We've used this, uh, the gospel grid or the, uh, the cross chart to, to display, to illustrate how this gospel growth works. 
This top line represents that as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, as we come to see more of what God is like, how how holy He is, and how beautiful He is, and how clean, and how pure that He is, we're filled with awe and amazement. And at the same time, that as we grow in that bottom line, as we we decrease in an appreciation of our own holiness, as we grow in our awareness that we are sinners, and as we are humbled, we see that there's this divergence between what God is like and what we are like. And there is this massive gap that must be filled with the work of Christ. And as as we see this divergence we begin to see more and more that Jesus alone is able to bridge the gap that is between us and God. And so we become more and more amazed, more and more appreciative of the cross of Christ and the work that Christ has done. And we find ourselves compelled to obey and full of joy and full of worship. This is gospel growth. This is how we grow in the Christian life. And and for the last several weeks, we've been talking more specifically about what Christ has done for us on the cross. We have been celebrating two very specific blessings that come to us in salvation. We've seen that that God has justified us in Christ. It's a a big theology word that that describes how Christ has forgiven our sins and made us right with God. But not only has he justified us, but he has actually given us the righteous work that Christ has done in his life. We receive, we passively receive the righteousness that Jesus has earned. And more than that, as we saw last week, we've been adopted into his family. We who were once enemies of God, shaking our little fists at him, defying him in our lives and in our ways. He's brought us into his home. He's adopted us into his household. And we've seen that this, this, by believing these things and by working out these implications in our lives, we find that they anchor us and keep us, keep us from drifting away from the gospel. Now, most of this, I would say, fits into the category of what the gospel is, what the contents are. And, and we've seen that We've seen that this is very practical, I hope. I hope you've seen that. But I want to get even more practical. Today I want to talk more specifically about how does the gospel work? How does, how does it work? And I want to see more specifically, let's explore the relationship between the law and the gospel. The relationship between the law and the gospel. Now, you may not be even interested in the relationship between the law and the gospel. That may not mean much to you, so let's think about how we can frame this question biblically. Now, we've been saying for weeks that the gospel, that the heart of the gospel is that one must have faith. Not works. You don't need works, but faith. One must have faith, not good deeds, in order to be made right with God. No matter how many good works you have, not enough. Not enough. Faith, not works, to be made right with God. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 11, we can see that this is clear. Paul makes this clear. Verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified 
before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. No one can be justified by obeying the law. So my question for you is this. If we have been saved by faith, saved by grace, then why are there so many commands in the Bible? Why are there so many rules? I mean, what's the point of it all? If we're saved by faith and not by deeds, then why do we have all these commands to do good things in the Bible? You know, if you think about it, there's really only two types of contents in the Scripture. There are laws or commands, these moral instructions, right? Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not be sinful in your anger, do love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's hundreds of these, hundreds of them, right? There's moral instructions, but there's also these gospel contents, these precious passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that for by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. So if we, we have these two types of uh, material in the Bible. So the question is this. If we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, then why all the commands? Why do we have to obey? What do we do with them? Sometimes during the week I like to get out of my office and, and go do sermon prep or read or pray in some of the different rooms around the church building. And Earlier this week I was in one of our youth Sunday school classrooms and they had created a, a board on the wall where they had praises and, and prayer requests and, and things that they had seen God doing in their lives. And I was, I was looking through that and I saw that one of our youth, I don't, I don't know who, pinned, pinned this up on the walls of prayer requests. And, and this youth said, help me do better in my walk. All right, that's, that was the desire of this youth, to help me do better in my Christian walk. Is that a good request? I mean, is that a waste of time? If, we're, if we can't be justified before God by obedience and by works, then why does it matter how good our walks are? What's the point? Is that a good request? Why should you be concerned about living an obedient life, Christian? Well, I think that is a good request. And here's why. You see, all of this comes down to our understanding of the relationship between the law of God and the gospel. And this is an incredibly important question that I think many of us are kind of fuzzy in our thinking about. For example, there are many non-Christians who think that the Christian faith is just a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws, right? A bunch of do this, don't do that. They're, they're put off. They will openly admit. You may be here today, you're thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm openly put off by God who would tell me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm free, right? I'm an American. I do what I want put off by all these laws and all these commands. I don't want God to tell me how to spend my money or to enjoy sex or to eat food. I don't want God, I don't want any God to tell me about that stuff. Many non-Christians are put off by the rules of the Christian faith. They see it as just a religion of rules. But I think some of us as Christians, if we were honest, we're put off 
by the commands as well. We may be, right, we don't want to go to hell, so we follow God, right? We, we've bought into the Christian faith, but we kind of follow God at an arm's length, right? I'll, 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 I'll let your grace kind of cover my sins, but I'm not going to buy all the way into this. I'm not going to totally follow you because that would mean no more fun, right? We see God as, as someone who doesn't want us to have fun. He just reigns on our parade is what it feels like. Do you see God like that? Do you see God's commands as burdensome? You see, as Christians, we also struggle to understand how the law and the gospel relate to one another. And this is a fundamental question to how you understand the Bible. Do you see the Bible mostly as a book of morality? Is the Bible primarily for you an instruction manual for how to live your life? Or is it the story of redemption? Is the Bible the way that you become moral? Right? I meet people all the time. I came to church because I want to raise my kids in church so they have morals. You can't go to the Bible for that. The Bible doesn't, doesn't help you with that. Because if you go to the Bible and all you get is morality, and if you don't get Jesus, you've got nothing. You've got more condemnation. You missed the whole point. Did you know there are going to be a whole lot of very moral people in hell? Hell is not just a place for murderers and thieves and homosexuals. Hell is a place for Pharisees, for people who think that they're good just because they behave. This may be true for you. And we've seen that for all of us, even as believers who, who have some flesh remaining in us, that we are all pulled into this lie, into this trick that we behave in order to be good. We may say, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but maybe we're not trusting in Jesus. Maybe we're trusting in ourselves and following ourselves. You see, the road to follow Jesus is very narrow. And the Bible says most will not find it. It's hard to find. The path that leads to destruction, that path is wide and many find it. That's an easy path. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. You see, we need to understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. We've got to make sure we get this right because we might get the law and miss the gospel. And that just gets us hell. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. If I could summarize my main idea, it would be with this phrase. It summarizes the whole sermon, and, and we're going to go into this in more detail tonight. This morning's the basic, basic, basic introduction. We'll go deeper in this tonight if you come back at 6 o'clock. But we can summarize the main idea like this. The law drives us to the gospel, and then Jesus frees us to obey the law. The law drives us to the gospel, and then the gospel frees us to obey. We'll take, that, we'll take those points one at a time. The law drives you to the gospel. Here's, here's how. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is to see that the law shows you that you're a sinner. 
The law shows you that you're a sinner. Look down at uh, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't do all of of the things that are written in the Bible, I'm talking about everything, you're under a curse. This is the curse of the law. If you have not obeyed every command in the Bible in complete sincerity and fullness, you're under the curse of the law. And do you see how this works? The law tells you God's standard for your life. His standard for the way that you live. And guess what? You don't measure up. Not even close. You don't measure up. Have you ever driven by one of those live... uh, speed limit signs, right, with the radars built into it. You ever driven by those? I don't see many in, in Jonesboro, but uh, I'm sure you've seen those. You, you drive by and they've got the speed limit sign posted, 35 miles an hour. So at that point, I have all the information that I need, all right? I know the law, and I have a speedometer, which doesn't really malfunction, okay? We know that, all right? Sp- speedometer, uh, speed limit, 35 miles an hour. My car speedometer tells me how fast I'm going, That's not enough, somebody decides. Instead, we also need a flashing light that tells you your actual speed, right? 45 miles an hour, right? So so what's happening? The law is being posted, but it doesn't just tell us what the standard is. It also delivers the verdict. You are a speeder, right? A a law-breaking speeder. You deserve a speeding ticket and higher insurance rates, right? that's That's what's going on, the verdict. That's how the law functions in our lives. The law reveals that we are a sinner. When you read the Bible, you should see a flashing light. Broken, 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 disobeyed, fail, wrong, hell. That's what we see when we read the law. Because we don't measure up. None of us measure up. For all have sinned and fallen short, short of the glory of God. The law brings knowledge of sin. Don't don't be focusing on someone else's sin. The law tells you that you are a sinner. I think this is one of the reasons, I, I, I suppose, that Christians struggle to read our Bibles. It's so convicting, right? So convicting just all the time. So for me this week... I think on Thursday or so, I was, in, I was doing my daily Bible reading, and I was in 2 Timothy chapter 4, came to this verse. This woke me up. As for you, always be sober-minded and endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. That's all I needed. I stopped, right? Three ways I was pretty sure that I was failing. All right, I, I, I read that, and the law smacked me right across the head. Endure suffering. Endure suffering. And immediately the Spirit exposed all these places in my life that I'm kicking and screaming against the suffering that a good, sovereign, wise God has graciously permitted in my life. I could see ways that I was grumbling. I could see the complaining and the moping and the pity parties that I was throwing in my heart and maybe even in my words and my behavior. You see, the law says, Nathan, you are a sinner. 
and it's right. It's right. You see, the law does not make you righteous. That's not how the law works. It, it doesn't get me to God. It doesn't show me how to get to God. The law instead shows my complete inability to get to God by myself. And, and that it, The law doesn't reveal how great you are. It reveals how messed up you are. Do you see? And that drives you to a Savior. If you read the Bible and you're thinking, I'm, I'm in good shape, right? I do this, right? I tithe, I fast, right? I do if, if you read the Bible, you think you're in good shape, no need for a Savior, right? Some of you this morning are bored right now, maybe because I'm not singing, but also because you're not interested in a Savior because you think you're good. You're not. We all stand under God's law condemned. We need a Savior. The law drives you to Christ. And that's the second way that it works, is that the law drives us to a sin, to, the law shows us that we're sinners, and guess what? Sinners need a Savior. I need a Savior. That's the whole point of the law, to show you that you need a Savior. Look down at verse 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. I think the King James says uh, teacher or tutor, schoolmaster, schoolmaster, yeah. And, and, and the picture is all the same. That, that uh, the law was our, te our teacher, our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. For years, these verses confused me. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to make of them. I didn't, I didn't understand it until, until I began to see this word guardian. If you think of, I had a math tutor when I was in school, right? My mom said, all right, Caesar, not good enough. I'm getting you a tutor. That tutor had one job, to get me an A. No, to teach me math, right? She, she needed to help me. Under, I needed to walk out of there and understand that pre-calculus stuff, which made no sense to me nor does it still, right? And she needed to teach me that. Well, the law is our tutor. We have a lesson to learn from the law. The lesson is this. We need Jesus. We need Jesus because we can't keep the law. The law had one job to do. That's the point of the law, to say that you are a sinner. And you're a sinner. So when Christ comes on the scene, and when Christ Jesus came and said, I came to save sinners, guess what? <laughs> I want to get in that line because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. The law drives us to Christ. Let's do an example, okay? Let, let, let's, let's think about how this works, and I know this is going to get everyone. Some of you are thinking, right, you're using the law to judge me, right? You're thinking, that preacher, he shouldn't be speeding. You're right, by the way, should not be speeding. It's actually a hypothetical story, but I have sped, right? That, that guy shouldn't be speeding. And you have your speed limit righteousness, right? You always keep the speed limit, and you may tell me about it. That's fine, right? Yeah, okay, but there's more in the Bible, right? So, so uh, I'll get you here in a minute, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without complaining. How you feeling now? Do everything without complaining. 
Have you issued a complaint this week about your boss, about your teacher, about your homework, about your spouse? Were you like my daughter Karis who asked me why I preach so long? Are you complaining about the length of the sermon? Daddy, why do you preach so long? I mean, just think about your week. Maybe think about the bad day. I don't care. Think about the good day, the day you did the best. Who here did not utter one single word of complaint or have a grumble in your heart? Some of you are thinking, you know what? I'm still good. I, I don't speed and I don't complain. Liar. Let's try another one. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone achieve that one this week? I don't think so. You see, the law is not designed to reveal to you how great you are. The law is designed to reveal to you how messed up you are. When you clearly and honestly see the commands of God, you see, I fall short. Martin Luther talks about this dynamic, and he says it like this. The law, rightly understood and thoroughly comprehended, does nothing more than remind us of our sin and slay us by it and make us liable to eternal wrath. The law slays us and exposes that we're liable to wrath. It tells us that we are under God's wrath. That's what Romans chapter 2 says. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see, most of us we, we, don't, we don't have much of a sense of the way of the law. That's why Jesus isn't that big of a deal to us. That's why the gospel isn't that exciting. That's why you don't sing. Because you don't, who, who cares, right? You got to heaven, I'm good, right? You don't feel the weight of the law. You don't feel how crushing its demands are and how flat you should be to the ground. If you ever have seen the Olympic weightlifters do the, the clean and the jerk, right? They, they take a barbell loaded with kilos of weight and they fling that thing up and they throw it up over their head and they make funny noises and wear funny clothes. Right? It's, it's incredible. I can't, I can't do that. Now imagine if I, right, if I saw the Olympic weightlifting, American Olympic weightlifter, right, and he did that for us and I said, I can do that. Walk over to the barbell and take all the weight off the barbell, right? And I take that 45-pound barbell and I fling that up over my head and I grunt and make noises and say, see, it's not that hard, right? That's what most of us do with the law. We take all the weight off and then we get up under it and we're like, I'm good. But we need to feel the full weight of the law. And when you feel, when you see the law clearly, when you realize that you stand under the law, it crushes you. It crushes you. You cannot stand under it. You need a Savior. That's how the law drives you to the gospel. The second point is this. The law drives you to the gospel and the gospel frees you to obey. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because I am crushed under the law and I need someone to get me out. We are all under God's wrath because of the curse that comes with our sin. And don't act like you're a victim. We all have chosen willingly to engage in our rebellion against God. And because of that curse, that means everyone goes to hell. Right? Everyone, no one gets to heaven. Unless this curse is removed, 
Everyone goes to hell, and no one goes to heaven. But the gospel removes the curse of the law, or proclaims how Christ has moved the curse of the law. Look back down at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone, that's me, who and you, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, precious words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. First thing for you to notice, church, is that Christ frees us from the curse of the law. I hope you saw that. Verse 10, Curses everyone who does not abide or continue in all the things written in the law. Okay? you got to keep all of it. Close enough is not enough. This is not horseshoes. This is not hand grenades. Close does not count. If you have not kept all of God's law, you're cursed. But praise God for verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became the curse. He became the curse the curse for us. He took our place. We've spent weeks looking at this recently, that on the cross, the one who never sinned, the one who never disobeyed, the one who never complained, took on the curse of sin so that we who place our faith in him would be set free from the curse of the wrath of God. I feel inclined this morning I know, I know, I know that there's some in here who you think, you believe in God, you believe in Christ, but you don't follow him. You haven't repented. I plead with you, turn and follow Jesus. You have no hope other than in Christ. You can't, you can't just add him to your life. You have to get, you have to die. You have to give up your hope of anything other than your faith in him. So place your faith in him and turn to Christ who frees you from the curse of the law. Jesus took our place. And so what that means is that in Christ, God has freed us from the curse of the law. We're freed from it. We can't be free to obey the law if we're under its curse, if we're under bondage to it. So Christ sets us free. But he doesn't stop there, right? If you ever think you've gotten to the end of the gospel, keep looking. There's always more. Christ, he didn't stop there. Because in the gospel, God gives us the spirit of Christ to obey. The gospel, the gospel teaches that God gives us a whole new spirit. Look back down at verse 14. We read that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, so what we're trying to see here is that the gospel frees us to obey because Christ has freed us from the curse of the law and now given us his spirit who compels us to obey. You see, God did not just break us free from the curse of the law and leave us on our own. Do you know what would happen? 
we'd fall right back into it. We would fall right back in. We'd be clean, we'd have a clean state, immediately go back to our sin. If, if God doesn't do something, we'll be right back into our sin. And so he gave us his spirit. This is incredibly practical for your life, Christian. Because now, you don't just have the law of God outside speaking in, telling you what to do. Now you have the spirit inside, empowering you to do what God commands. This is the gift of the Spirit, and it comes with a whole new heart. Perhaps you remember how the prophet Ezekiel prophesied of this new covenant reality. He, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. And then look at this word. And cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You see, in Christ, God does not just take our sin and make us righteous. He recreates us. He gives us new hearts. This is why, this is why we call this the new birth. Because the Christian has been born again. I'm a born-again Christian because God has taken my old heart out that only beats for Nathan and only engages in sin, and he's given me a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that desires the things of God and desires the things of Christ. It's a, I now have a new heart that actually wants to obey the Bible. I don't resent it anymore. You see, I think one of the key ways to tell if you're a Christian or not, I think one of the key ways to tell is to look, does the Holy Spirit live inside you? Because if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, then obeying God's rules is not going to be a burden. It's not going to be some duty that you, dread, that you dread. It's not a wet blanket on your fun life. Because the Spirit of God has given you new desires, and those new desires are God's desires. You see, those who are born again want to obey. Doesn't mean we always do it. We have these new hearts, and they're in a body that still has flesh. So there's a conflict. We, the Spirit wars against the flesh. So it doesn't mean we don't sin, but we desire to obey. Do you desire, you who profess Christ, do you desire to obey all of the commands of God? You see, the law drives you to the gospel, and then the gospel frees you to obey. We'll talk about that in much more detail tonight, but I want to try to break that down even more. Let's, let's see how the law can compel us to worship, right? That's the goal here. How can, how can a command shake my life on Thursday morning at 6 a.m.? How can the law invite you to praise God at 1 o'clock on Tuesday afternoons, even if you mess up? Let's use the cross chart for this, or the gospel grid, right? You remember how this works. Let's, let's use this to understand how this plays out. I want you to think of an example sin in your life, some sin that, that you're struggling with, Right? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a habitual sin that you're just, you're constantly battling. 
Maybe it's complaining. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe, I'll, here, I'll give you some ideas, all right? Maybe you struggle with lust. The law of God says that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law is do not commit adultery. Maybe that's your struggle. Or maybe this is your struggle. Maybe you struggle with your words, like I do, right? Well, here's the law. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You struggle with complaining, grumbling, or maybe it's this one. Guys, hold on to your seats. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Does anyone here, any guys feel like they're just killing it with that one, right? You feel like, I've, I've nailed that one, right? You, you feel like that? You, you think about your marriage, you, I've just, I have got that one down. Maybe that's yours, right? Love your wives like Christ loved the church. So, so have an example in mind. Don't use your spouse's example. If you don't have one, nudge your spouse, ask, what should my sin be that the preacher's telling me to think about? I promise, they've got one ready for you, right? Let, let them know. Okay, so let's, let's think about this on the cross chart. So the Bible tells me God's law. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, right? So I read that, and immediately that top line starts going up. Because I read about God's holiness. I read about his standard, and I consider the way Christ loved the church. That top line is growing. It's, it's going up. God is increasing in my view. But immediately, condemnation comes. Because I don't do that. I don't do that the way that I should. In fact, I'd be willing to say publicly that I don't think I have ever loved my wife even for one single moment the way Christ loves his church. Your pastor is a guilty, selfish sinner. I, I don't do this right. So through the law, I become immediately aware of God's holiness and his righteousness. And then I see immediately that the law doesn't just, it doesn't just tell me what God is like and what his character is like. That's his standard for me. And so that bottom line starts to go down. Right? Nathan, I start shrinking. All right? My view of my own holiness begins to decrease when I realize in a new way with some fresh example of some stupid thing I said that I don't love my wife the way that I should, that I don't use my words the way that I should. And so this gap grows. And as these lines diverge, what happens? As I see God's holiness increasing and as I see my sinfulness increasing, what happens? I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Can Christ do it? Is he big enough? Is the cross sufficient for even me? And guess what I see? It is. And so the cross grows in my estimation. The command has driven me to Christ, where I, am, where I see that, I am, I, that he is sufficient for me, and my heart is filled with worship and awe and gratitude and love. And guess what? Now I have this new energy to go love better. Right? I don't have to. Right? I'm free but I'm compelled to love better. You see, church, we are compelled to consider Christ. When you see sin in your life, 
look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I would encourage you to think about the three categories of Christ, the three categories of his life. The first is his life, the way that Jesus lived. I mean, my goodness. Jesus lived the perfect life. Never complained. He never, he had all this power, and he never abused it. He never took advantage of someone. He never said an unkind word. He never disobeyed. He never said a word that was not edifying. He never, for a single moment, used someone else for his own benefit at their expense. Where I failed, Christ succeeded. He did it. He he went through the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no help. He did not sin. Christ perfectly obeyed. And guess what? As we've seen for the last several weeks, he gave me that righteousness. He gave me his record. Took the medals off his chest, pinned them on mine, I get the credit. That's the righteousness that I get from the life of Christ. And then consider his death. When I consider Christ, I consider the cross of Christ. And at the cross of Christ, I am reminded that Jesus became a curse for me because I'm a bad husband. He did that for me. And because of my faith in him, he has removed my guilt. He's broken me free from the bondage of sin by removing the wrath that God has towards me. The wrath that God righteously, justly has towards me for mistreating his daughter. Oh, I praise God for the cross. But this is where most Christians stop. We, we, we tend to stop at the cross, but it doesn't end there. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. It proves that he has power over sin and death. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He took on my sin, but he didn't stay dead. Because he's stronger than sin. Jesus, though he died for every selfish thing I've ever done and every selfish deed that you have ever done, he rose in victory. And he's still alive, isn't he? He's not dead. Now he lives. And it proves that he's more powerful than your sin. And he's given me this new spirit. And now I have this spirit that that lives in me, which means I actually have the power to love my wife the way Christ loves her. I have that power now in me. I have this new heart, the power that I need to obey. And since Jesus, who never said a cruel thing, is now living in me, I have new power to overcome my sin and to speak words that give grace instead of bringing pain. Don't you see? The command to love your wife like Christ has loved the church, it drives you, husbands. It drives you to Christ. Because if you're like me, I don't do that. And and in Christ, I find that I've been forgiven. And now that Christ lives in me, I'm able to choose obedience. Not to get Jesus to love me. Not to get Christ to accept me, but because now I want to. I'm free. You see, so many of us, are stuck in the cycle of repenting of sin and not changing. 
We're, we're, we're not seeing much victory over sin because we stop at the cross. We don't, we're focusing only on the cross and we're forgetting his life and his resurrection. But Christ has not just forgiven my sin. Christ lived a perfect life for me and then gave me his spirit who empowers me to obey. You see, the law drives you to the gospel and then the gospel frees you to obey. The result of all of this is worship. That's the point. It's glory to Christ that people will now see the good deeds in my life that God gets all the credit for, and they'll praise him for it. The law drives you to the gospel, and then the gospel empowers you and frees you to obey. Will you please pray with me in a time of response and invitation?